Hebrews 7, 20 through 28. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. God, as we prayed together, we do ask that you would prepare our hearts to accept your word, that anything in us, any voices in us that are not your own would be silenced. God, may we have ears to hear from you and from you alone during this time. And we do pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is The Promised Priest of a Better Covenant. We are wrapping up Hebrews chapter 7 today. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time or joining us, um, haven't, if you haven't been here the past couple weeks, uh, we have been in Hebrews chapter 7 and we are wrapping that up today. Hebrews 7 is a challenging chapter in a very challenging book. We have seen as we've gone through Hebrews the need for reminders often of kind of the overview of the book, the context, kind of where we've been at, the structure that ties everything together. And I'm not going to get into all those things, but a very kind of quick overview as we've been saying in the drum that we've constantly been beating that the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Okay, we're going to see that. Again, our author continues to beat that drum that Jesus is better. We're going to see an instance of that today. Uh, not going to recap all the things that he's better than, but we are introduced to a new theme, uh, and that is that of covenant, that Jesus is better than the old covenant. And we'll be looking at that in a bit. Kind of the overall context is we're looking at this kind of bigger context that we're in in Hebrews 414 through chapter 10, and that is looking at the priesthood, uh, this Old Testament priesthood and how Jesus is better than the priesthood. And then we, we're going to be coming in chapters 8 through 10 to this kind of more narrow focus within that bigger section of the covenant, of the new covenant. So chapters 8 through 10 are really going to be focused on this idea of how Jesus uh, is the mediator of a better covenant. So we've seen here how Melchizedek is 
and his priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, Jesus, who is in the order of Melchizedek, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And then we've also seen this flow in Hebrews, kind of this weaving in and out of instruction. What is true? The author is telling us things that are true about God, that are true about Jesus and, and who he is and what he's done. And then there is exhortation. We are told what to do. And as we've mentioned before, if we read Paul, a lot of times, like you read Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians are basically all instruction. He, he front loads the instruction. This is who God is. And then he kind of hits you with all the exhortation. Therefore, this is what you're to do. That'd be like chapters four through six of Ephesians. But again, remember in Hebrews, the author just continues to weave in and out instruction, exhortation, instruction, exhortation. But interestingly, uh, when we get to this middle section here, especially in chapters uh, six through 10, we, we go for about four chapters without any clear exhortation. We're really in a kind of the biggest section right now that's just all instruction, all just telling us kind of what is true. The last exhortation we saw was really kind of that major one in, in chapters five and six, talking about going on to maturity, uh, not being dull of hearing, not being sluggish, and then that big warning about apostasy in chapter six. And then all of that is bookended, as we said last week, chapter 416 and chapter 1022 with the exhortation to draw near to God. And so we saw last week, and you look back at um, verse 18 and 19. So this really kind of comes in the middle of those two bookended exhortations to draw near to God. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So again, there's this reminder that we need to draw near to God. This whole section about Jesus being our priest, about this better covenant, is all so that we would draw near to God, that we would have confidence. We saw in chapter 4 and chapter 10, when it talks about drawing near to God, we're, we're told to have confidence as we draw near to God. So as we hear this again, right, we've been saying these same things. The question is, why do we need to keep being reminded of these things? It's because it's easy to get lost in the details, these details that can feel repetitive, right? It's kind of easy to get lost in the details. Any of us who have learned something, have, who have studied and learned something well, you know that it's through a lot of repetition and through a lot of reminders, right? Uh, you go to school, you learn things. Uh, if you do continuing education, if you're doing testing to keep up your certification for your job, it's all because you need those constant reminders, right? Just because you studied something like 10 years ago in your books doesn't mean that you're going to remember all the details. So there's always this need to, to constantly be uh, reminding ourselves and, and learning things because it's easy for us to forget. Uh, yesterday, Cabin and I went down to uh, the state diving meet in at Waukesha South High School. And on the way back, uh, we stopped at a sushi place and I heard the, the waitress in the back talking and, she, and I heard her speaking Chinese. And so she came out and so I asked her in Chinese, where are you from in China? And she answered without kind of blinking. And then she kind of stopped and was like, whoa, you, like, how can you speak Chinese? And so I started talking to her and and she was like, well, how's, like, how's your Chinese so good? I saw I lived in China for 10 years and it was just talking about like being a, being a language student. And I studied, like I was a student the whole time I was there. Like I studied a lot, right? And I was in the environment. Like 
and her her husband is there and, and runs a restaurant with her and he like doesn't speak any English. Her English is pretty good. He doesn't speak any English. And just he's lived in, in the US for like three years, but he like doesn't, you know, he doesn't like go out and try to learn. And we were just talking about how environment is the most important. Like you can't learn a language. You can't you know grow in something if you're not in that environment. And so I think that idea of of environment and, and to con- continuing study are really important. I'll come back to that. But chapter seven here might seem like this kind of abstract information, right? With all this talk about Melchizedek and all this talk about the Old Testament priesthood that is no longer operating. And we might look at this and be like, well, so what? But the whole purpose, again, of all of this, of all of Hebrews is to point us to Jesus, to show us that Jesus is better. And as we think about environment, we must be in the right environment, right? We must be in gathered corporate worship. We must be gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ to study God's word. We must be putting ourselves in a place where we can be reminded of those things. So there's kind of that corporate environment element. And then we must continually be students of God's word individually, right? If, if I don't work at, if I don't like ever practice my Chinese, if I don't ever like study and, and do anything, of course, I'm going to forget it, right? I need to, I need to keep that up. Just like with our with our Bibles, right? There's there's a lot here, right? There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to study. If we don't continually seek God, if we don't continually seek to grow in our understanding of who God is, we are going to we're not even going to be able to to keep up, right, with our faith. So we need to be able to to continue. And it doesn't mean that this is how we like earn our salvation, right? Or this is how we like be good enough in God's eyes. But if we're not constantly seeking the Lord, if we're not looking for opportunities to grow and to learn more about him, then we won't grow in our faith. So as we think about this original audience here in this context, and we think about this, especially this um, topic of environment, clearly there were things in their environment that were hindering them. There were, there were whether it was people or whether it was false teachings, there were things that were trying to get them to go and to turn away from the Lord, to hinder them from seeking the Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have those same challenges, right? We are tempted to drift away from Jesus. We're tempted to seek to replace him with other things, whether it is some other belief system, uh, that could be something external, right? We're like turning to some other way of doing things, or it could just be internal. It could be self-reliance. Like, I don't need Jesus. I don't need to you know, really seek him. I'll just kind of coast and do my own thing. I think these chapters here, as we, as we're getting into the heart of the book here are really a challenge for us to look at how great Jesus is uh, to consider what he has done for us. So let's seek to do that together today. As we wrap up chapter seven, this, again, this challenging chapter, we're going to look at three ways that we are encouraged to continue to draw near to God, kind of that main exhortation we've seen in this big section from chapters four through 10. How can we draw near to God? There are three ways that we're going to see today to draw near to God. First, let us draw near to God through our promised priest. Let us draw near to God through our promised priest. And we're going to see this in verses 20 through 22. Now, our author makes this connection here in these first uh, first few verses here with what we saw in chapter 6, verses 13 
through 20. We see here in verse 20, uh, it says, it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, so this idea of an oath here, we can connect back to chapter 6, 13 through 20, where it's talking about Abraham. We see, we see there that God made an oath himself. God swore, because he has no one greater to swear by, God swore an oath by himself when he made this promise to Abraham. So again, there's this, there's this connection here in the oath that's made regarding Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek and the, the promise that was made to Abraham. The, the focus is here is that God himself is the one who made the oath. And we are presented here with the first contrast in this passage. And this passage is, is full of many contrasts. The first contrast is that the earthly priests were made priests without an oath. They did not take an oath to become priests. And there was no, there was no oath given by God for their priesthood. But Jesus was made a priest by this oath. Now we've seen Psalm 10, Psalm 110, verse 4 quoted already a couple times and uh, referred to. We saw it just back in uh, verse 17. And then we saw it uh, earlier and, and referenced a couple times. But in those places, just the second half uh, was, was quoted. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now our author quotes the whole verse where it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So this is that idea that God has sworn this oath. The priesthood of Melchizedek is something that God has promised to do, and he has done it by making this oath. So the one who made a promise to Abraham a thousand years before David penned these words in Psalm 110, the focus is that he has kept his oath and he has fulfilled his promise in his son, who we are told here in verse 22 is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, our author introduces two new words here that we haven't seen yet in Hebrews. The first one here is guarantor. Some translations uh, translated as guarantee. Um, so Jesus is the guarantor or the guarantee of a, of a better covenant. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is right here, but it is synonymous with the word for mediator. Uh, so we could say here that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, which we're actually going to see that language uh, used in chapter 9 and chapter 12, uh, Jesus being the mediator of a better covenant. But the reason that word mediator, if it's used twice there, you might ask, well, why isn't it used here? And it's because of this idea of the oath, this guarantee of an oath, and because the mediator and the oath don't connect in the way that the, the guarantor and the oath connect. So it's saying that Jesus is the one who, who guarantees that the oath that God made is, is actually his oath. So we have that idea here. And then the second one is this word covenant. Uh, covenant is used 17 times. The word for covenant is used 17 times in Hebrews out of the 33 times that is used in the New Testament. Uh, so it's going to be a major, and this is the first use of it in Hebrews. So over the next uh, three chapters, the covenant is going to be a major theme. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, a covenant will be a major theme for us. And we've, I know we've encouraged you many times to uh, dive into the Westminster Confession of Faith, and there are some really helpful 
helpful chapters in there. And this is an especially helpful one. There are actually two chapters back to back that deal with these two themes. Chapter seven in the Westminster Confession of Faith is of God's covenant with man. And chapter eight is of Christ the mediator. So right back to back, you have this idea of covenant and mediator. We're looking at how God relates to us and who Christ is as the mediator of that covenant. So I'm just going to read two small portions, one from, from each chapter. And I would encourage you uh, to go back and, and read those chapters on your own at some point, especially over these, these next uh, few weeks while we're going to be in these chapters looking at, at covenant. So chapter seven and eight in the confession. Just, yeah, they'll just take a, a few minutes. It's, it's pretty short. Um, so the question here is, why is this theme of covenant now introduced? Why did he wait until now to introduce this theme? And why is it important? Well, it's interesting here that he just kind of uses this word in chapter seven and then doesn't really uh, talk about it anymore. It's a little bit of a teaser as he's not really going to unpack it until chapter eight. But look at chapter eight, verse one with me. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this, okay? Basically, everything that came in these first seven chapters, it seems, is kind of a, a, a preface, right? Kind of pre preparation for what he's about to say beginning in chapter eight. So the point in what we are saying, in other words, you better pay attention, right? Like this is, this is kind of the apex of everything that he's been arguing. The point of what we've been saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and on and on and on. So he's going to go on about how Jesus' priesthood relates to this idea of the new covenant. And Jeremiah chapter 31 is going to be quoted. A big section of that, which we just read, is going to be quoted in chapter 8. So kind of get ready, prepare yourself for that for next week. So again, we'll be over the next six weeks, we'll be unpacking this idea of covenant a lot more as we look at chapters eight through 10. Uh, but just want to kind of whet our appetite a little bit this morning and get us thinking about the importance of this concept of covenant. So Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter seven, the first section specifically addresses our need for the new covenant. It says the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could not have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So let's pay attention to these words here, voluntary condescension. The voluntary condescension of God, meaning God came to us, right? He condescended. Christ took on human flesh to become like us. This was needed because of the distance between us and God due to our sin. We have to be re reminded that God is always the one who acted first. When he made the covenant with Abraham, you remember, he, he had Abraham cut the animals and set them out. And then what did he do? God put Abraham to sleep, right? And then God symbolically through the smoking pot and the fire, God passed through those animals and God established that covenant with Abraham. He established the 10 commandments with Moses. He established his covenant with David. And then this promise of the new covenant that we see in Jeremiah 31, which is fulfilled through Jesus, our guarantor and our mediator. 
So God comes to us because of our great need for him. And he does that by establishing covenants with his people. And again, we'll be diving into that a lot more. I think this is important to remember that God comes to us because so much of the world that we live in, so much of our own lives, we ask the question, what do I have to do to achieve X, right? Like I have this goal. I'm trying to get somewhere. What do I need to do to achieve this thing? And obviously, if we want to achieve some goal, if we want to learn something, if we want to get somewhere, if we want to get a job, like we have to put in the work, right? Like you're not going to just roll out of bed and everything's going to fall into your lap. We have to work at things, whether it's education, relationships, our spiritual lives, right? We have to work at things. But the reality is, again, that we are often tempted in this age of self-sufficiency to be our own mediators between us and God. So think about that for yourself. What are the areas where you're tempted to take that like effort, right? To, to take that, I'm going to, I got to put in the work, I got to do something. But then you kind of say, well, I want to control my own relationship with God, right? I want to control how things go spiritually in my life. Maybe it's that you're, you're in control and you're, you're trying to, or you're trying to be in control. You're trying to manage everything. Or maybe it's that you're, you're just not, you're checked out, right? You're just running from God and you're saying, I don't want anything to do with the Lord. I just want to, I just want to run my own life. I want to live my own way. And, and that's where you're at right now. Again, all those things are contrary to what we're called to do here to draw near to God. We're either drawing near to God, right? We're either laying down our own attempts. We're laying down our own efforts and the external distractions, and we're attempting to draw near to God, or we're doing it our own way, and we're, and we're not drawing near to him. So no matter where you're at today on that whole spectrum, the need remains the same for all of us. We all need a mediator between us and God. We need a better guarantee than what the world has to offer us or what we have to offer to ourselves. Jesus mediates between us and God, and he is the guarantee that God will keep his promises. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, verse, uh, part 3, references, if you, if you look at the, the full version of the confession, it has all of the footnotes uh, for all the different scripture references. And it has, in this section, it has references to Hebrews 7.22, Jesus being the guarantor of a better covenant, and verse 26, about Jesus being uh, holy, innocent, unstained. So listen to what this says here. Of, of Christ the mediator. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might Thoroughly, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, he is carrying out the will of his father as a holy, harmless, and undefiled high priest 
something that was not able to be done by the earthly high priests, not only because of their sin, but also because of their impermanence. That's what we turn to next as we consider another great contrast between the earthly high priests and Jesus, our great high priest. Second thing we're going to look at is let us draw near to God through our permanent priest. Let us draw near to God through our permanent priest. And we see this in verses 23 through 25. And we've mentioned this several times in the last two weeks. And this argument has been building in chapter seven that the earthly priests all died, right? That is what is reiterated here in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, verse 24, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. It's so hard to wrap our minds around this because we are like those priests. We are going to die. Our lives on this earth are not permanent, and nothing that we experience in this life, even if it outlives us, is permanent. No living thing, no created thing will last forever. I was reading a, a book this earlier this week. Kevin and I went down to visit my dad in Kentucky for a few days, and uh, my dad used to be a logger, and there's this book called uh, Norwegian Wood, I think it's called, and like about like cutting, stacking, and storing wood and it's just a, this book like total book for loggers and uh, I gave this book to my dad and for his birthday and uh was I read through about the first half of it and it's just talking about these like massive old trees all over the world in different parts of the world and and how these trees have survived and their root systems and all these things there's actually a tree uh called Methuselah right named after the the oldest person in the bible it's a bristlecone pine in the white mountains of eastern california and it's estimated to be nearly 5,000 years old, right? Like, that's just mind-blowing. Uh, actually, I think, like, it's, like, in a, some secret place, supposedly. Like, people don't even know where it is because they're trying to protect it. Um, I don't know. But Methuselah, right? This 5,000-year-old tree still is not going to live forever, right? This, this tree is not going to last forever. At some point, this tree will cease to exist. So we can't even wrap our brains around a 5,000-year-old tree, right? How can we, we, and everything we see, everything we experience is, is impermanent, right? Everything passes away except our triune God. So there's this huge contrast, this huge emphasis here that everything around you, the, the people you rely on, right? These priests that you rely on to be mediators, they're going to pass away, but God will not pass away. And because Jesus lives forever, he is not subject to these same limitations that the earthly priests were subject to. He did not need to be replaced like batteries and furnace filters and brakes on your car, right? Things that annoy us because they just wear out and we constantly have to be spending money and time and effort to get them fixed, right? They lose their effectiveness, but Jesus won't because he continues forever. Then we're told in verse 25, consequently, right? Because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
This is saying that our salvation is certain as those who draw near to God through Jesus because he continues to act for us as our high priest. Now, you might recall Westminster Shorter Catechism 25, which we looked at this summer when we did our prophet, priest, and king series. I should quiz you all, but I won't. <laughs> the question is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is that Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up for us of, of his. I can't look at Alexandria because she always gives me the eye. Oh, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? <laughs> My bad. I shouldn't have looked at you. Sorry. And I shouldn't embarrass you. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in his making continual intercession for us. So these pieces that we see here in this answer, Jesus offers up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. This is the, the once for all saving to the uttermost that we see here in verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost, right? And then he lives, he always lives to make intercession for us. So that's what we see here. He makes continual intercession for us. This is what Jesus has done for us as our mediator. He has saved us to the uttermost, and he continues as we draw near to God through him. He continues to mediate for us as he intercedes before the Father on our behalf. And it's Great to look at what he has done for us. We emphasize that a lot, but it's not just because of what he has done for us, but fundamentally because of who he is. That's what we're going to see in our last section. Let us draw near to God through our perfect priest. Let us draw near to God through our perfect priest in verses 26 through 28. Again, notice the contrast here between Jesus, our great high priest, and the earthly priests. The earthly priests were none of the things that are listed here in verse 26. Jesus, our high priest, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This language here highlights Jesus' moral perfection. It highlights things that are only true of God. Again, this is another clear claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he claimed to be. And these earthly priests, as we see in verse 27, they had a need, right? Jesus did not have this need, but they have a need to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. That's what the high priest did. But Jesus did not have that need because he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Again, this is just a reiteration and a reminder of the burden of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which we're going to be, again, looking at a lot in the next few chapters. This need of these high priests to offer sacrifices for the people, or for themselves first, and then for the people, this is like the warning you get when you fly on a plane, right? To, about the oxygen mask. Like, Put your own mask on first, right? Take care of yourself so that you can take care of those around you. If you don't put your mask on, you're going to pass out, and then you're not going to be able to help 
your kids or whoever around you, right? But the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't just like a plane that was had this temporary like thing going on and then they were going to land, right? The Old Testament sacrificial system is like a plane that the oxygen mass land in the and it has unlimited fuel and it's like circling forever and ever. And you're just stuck in this constant cycle, right? But Jesus landed the plane. He says, you can take off your mask and you can breathe again because, because I have become the new air in your lungs, right? You don't need to rely on this old system of doing things. You don't need to rely on this other person to put your mask on you because he put his mask on himself and now you're good to go, right? This holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens high priest offered up himself once and for all, and he dealt fully and finally with our sin. Again, we're going to see this emphasized in chapters 9 and 10 when we look at Jesus' sacrificial work compared and contrasted even further with the earthly sanctuary and all the work that, got, that has gone on. We've had kind of hints of it a little bit through this chapter and a little bit before, but we're really going to be getting into the details of what that looks like in the, in the following chapters. And then verse 28 wraps kind of a nice bow on this whole chapter by highlighting again the importance of these contrasting ideas. The contrast we see here in this verse is the law. Which, let me read the verse. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So three things that are contrasted here as we wrap this chapter up. The law is contrasted to the word of the oath that was given by God. The men appointed in their weakness is contrasted with Christ, who was appointed not in weakness, right? Weakness of the men is contrasted with the perfection of Jesus. A son is appointed who has been made perfect forever. Again, we've said this several times. This idea of Jesus being made perfect does not mean that he had any sin, that he had any imperfection. It means that he carried out fully and finally the work that the Father gave him to do. In his perfect life, he achieved this perfection that the Old Testament sacrificial system could not offer. So when it talks about Jesus being made perfect as this perfect sacrifice, again, it's not suggesting that he was imperfect and he somehow became what he wasn't. It's this idea of completion. Uh, so it's contrasted to incompletion right and weakness and and the the old testament sacrificial system like that plane just going round and round and round right so we are meant to see here in this chapter in this section we are meant to see jesus perfection we are meant to see our own imperfection we see our own perfection imperfection in the earthly priests in the sacrificial system and then we are meant to feel our need for him, right? We need to sense that need that we have for Jesus as our sacrificial high priest. Great reminder as we come to the Lord's Supper, right? As we think about a sacrificial offering, as we think about the Son of God who became that perfect sacrifice, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out for us, and for our sins and transgressions. 
So this is a great time for us to examine our own hearts. Where are we today? Where are we at in that whole spectrum of, of reliance? Are we drawing near to God? Are we relying on him and him alone for our salvation? Or are we attempting to, to seek other things? Are we attempting to do things on our own? This table is a picture of imperfection, right? Of our imperfection, our sin, our weakness, and of Christ's perfection. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us so that we might be renewed. We might be made whole in him. I want to give us an opportunity this morning to draw near to God as we're told over and over to do here in Hebrews, to do business with him, to seek his face. We'll take some time, uh, some moments before we come to the table, take some time in silence to seek the Lord, uh, to draw near to him, to, to question uh, where are you at with, with Christ, your high priest? Are you seeking his perfection? Are you seeking after him as your only mediator? So take some time now. I will pray for us. And then after that, I will invite us to come down. So take some time now to seek the Lord.